Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello, and welcome to the RIA Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno, the Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa. And thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you for pressing play. We are very excited for this episode to get into a subject that is near and dear to my heart, and one that we haven't spent a tremendous amount of time on on the RIA Edge podcast. We'll talk about, obviously, performance and growth, as we always do, but we will go deep and talk about people, we'll talk about pay, um, and talk about the human capital side of things and the role it plays in driving growth. And with that, I could not think of a better person to have on this podcast today to talk to human capital. Uh, we have Lisa Salvi, who's the Managing Director of Advisor Services at Charles Schwab Advisor Services. Lisa, thank you so much for taking some time out. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm excited to talk to you again. It's great to reconnect. And it's also great to reconnect and talk about benchmarking. Uh, it's a very small universe of people who've you know, spent a lot of time in their career working on benchmarking studies. So it's always a pleasure getting to talk to you. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about the Schwab benchmarking study that you've been working on. For quite some time here. Um, and before we dive into some of the findings, some of the themes, and some of the topics, I think it would be great if you know, our listeners are obviously all familiar with Schwab and Schwab Advisor Services. But Lisa, would you mind just giving a brief overview of your role, some of the projects that you work on, and also specifically how you work with advisors? Sure. I, I have the honor of leading our business consulting and education team. So we're a team of people across the country who work with advisors who custody with Schwab or Ameritrade on topics like growth strategy, talent strategies, referrals, cybersecurity is a huge one over the past several years, client journey mapping. Um, we also have three teams that help firms go independent for the first time and think about things like their tech stack and their firm design. And we get to do a lot of thought leadership pieces. Um, I host a monthly webcast that gets quite a few folks to hear some of our new research. Uh, benchmarking and the compensation study are a huge part of what we do. And really increasingly, we're doing a lot of work in the talent side of things. So trying to create a very high quality pipeline of talent for advisors to hire, getting more university students aware of the RIA profession, getting more women and racially diverse people into the industry, as well as just creating kind of this awareness that this wonderful profession exists. So lots of efforts there industry-wide with universities, and then also consulting with firms on their own talent and DEI strategies, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies as well. So that when you get the talent, they want to stay and they want to contribute to the long-term success of the firm. Yeah, I appreciate that you are a student of the industry. And not only have you taken on quite a bit on the talent side and the research side, but we definitely cross paths and uh, hopefully we can do more work on the diversity, equity, and inclusion side as well, um, where we spent a, a fair amount of time 
you know, recently trying to figure out how we can help you know, as a third party bringing new talent into the industry. Um, and with that, I, I think you, I would love to, to talk a little bit more about the benchmarking studies. And when we talk about growth on RIA Edge, I say this on just about every episode, right? If you've met one RIA, you've met one RIA, right? Every firm, <laughs> exactly. No matter how you know, unique, you know, no matter how successful they are, they all have their own blueprint. They're all, they all have their own roadmap and they all have their own way for really measuring success, which is why I find benchmarking is so important. Um, it just gives you a sense for, is you, are, are you growing by design or are you growing you know, by default in a lot of cases, which many firms have done over the last decade or so. Um, so with that, I'd love to dive in and learn a little bit more about what you're seeing in terms of growth levels and what's driving it. But before we do that, can you just tell us a little bit about the latest benchmarking study, when it was fielded and who participates? Yeah, absolutely. We field the study each year between January and March. Participating firms get a very robust 45-page peer report that shows their firm data versus their peer group, as well as a lot of information about the next peer group up. Um, You kind of hit the nail on the head. We do this study because when you're running a firm or a business, it can feel like you're on an island by yourself, and it's really hard to know how you're doing compared to other firms. Um, You know, is your growth rate good? How's your productivity um, what does your PL look like? What's your tech stack looking like? So it really provides that level of information. It's also a very strong foundation for our consulting efforts with firms. Mm-hmm. And um, this year we had over 1,200 firms participate. That represents $1.8 trillion in assets under management, which I just can't believe we've been doing the study for 16 Incredible. years. So that's just huge numbers. Um, And a lot of the information as we talk about growth that we're going to talk about today will be about um, the financial year end for 2021, although we do get some sentiment in the study as well. So we can talk about how advisors were viewing 2022 also. Okay, great. I appreciate that. As a, as a research and a data guy at heart, that, that's the only place to start a conversation um, about benchmarking. So you know, with that, we've talked about just some of the incredible growth rates that most RIAs have experienced over the last several years and over the last decade. Um, I'm curious in your research, what levels of growth have you seen over the last year or so in the RIA channel and what's typically driving that growth? Yeah. I mean, 2021 was just an incredible year across nearly every metric we track. I'll I'll throw some numbers at you. Um, AUM increased nearly 20% from the prior year. Revenue was up 23% and the number of clients was up over 6% in 2021. So we know 2022 has been a much more challenging year with the markets and um, the environment we're operating in, but there is really strong success that firms were bringing into this more challenging environment as they tackle those headwinds. And um, we really did see firms take this pandemic era and get a lot of leverage out of that. So things like adopting virtual meetings and some of the scale they're able to create with that, really rethinking their in-person touch points with clients and making those really deep and meaningful from a relationship perspective. All of those things uh, have carried into 2022. It's really incredible to think about just how much growth. I mean, even the 1.8 trillion that you mentioned, just in terms of the total assets participating in the study, uh, it's, it wasn't that long ago that it was probably a fraction 
of that. And I think, you know, we've seen so many different ways that firms can grow. Obviously, the markets over the last decade or so have driven a lot of growth. Um, but when you're seeing firms that are intentionally, you know, driving growth, um, and more specifically, when you look at organic growth, what, the firms that are growing the fastest and the most effectively, what are they doing right? And what can our listeners learn from these top performing firms? Yeah, well, first, let me just say, I love that you hit on that organic growth piece, because I think that's the most important thing to look at. So really understanding every firm should understand what their organic growth is, because it strips out all the market performance. That's more mm-hmm. controllable. It's more of an indicator of how well your client experience and your value proposition is resonating, how well your marketing and client acquisition strategy is is performing. So organic growth, just to touch on that specific Mm -hmm. piece, reached a five-year high in 2021. So this was driven by increase in assets from existing clients and new clients. And both of those metrics also reached a five-year high in 2021. So that's a really good indicator of just how much clients appreciate what an RIA does and what they're able to help them with through these periods of uncertainty. To go to what they're doing, though, that's where it gets really exciting. That's probably the question I get the most is how do some firms outperform? And I'll just maybe set the stage a little bit by saying about two years ago, we did a really robust kind of data scientist project. So we wanted to really look at all this wealth of data and information we get out of benchmarking and try to quantify that question. What do firms do to outperform? So what we did was we launched the top performing firms cohort. We have an index now and we look at the 15 key metrics foundational to really running an effective business. Mm -hmm. And firms that score in the top 20% of the index are considered a top performing firm. What I love about the way this ended up happening is we did all sorts of regression testing and everything else to really quantify this with, um, really smart people who understand all this, this, this portion of it really, really well. It's firms of all sizes are in this cohort. So it really reflects the overall composition of those 1200 firms that participate. It could be a newer firm. It could be a well-established firm. It could be a multi-billion dollar firm. So we were able to kind of like boil that down and really see what are they doing to help drive this top level of performance. And I'll say we saw three key trends and we can unpack any of these that you want to take the, take this in any of these three directions, but sure. top performing firms, they really take the time to use written strategies within their business and to write things down. They tend to be higher digital adopters and stand out in that area of getting some operational scale out of their digital adoption efforts of technology and they're very focused on their talent strategy. So those are like the top three areas and we can unpack any of those that you want to go into. Definitely. And I, I think I'd love to spend some time you know, on the talent, but before we do, one, I feel like I want to host a podcast just to run through each of the 15 different uh, uh, items that are in the methodology you're using. Um, I'm excited and I feel like I need a behind the scenes look at <laughs> that group um, and would love to learn a little bit more. But when you mentioned the digital piece, right? Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting. And we just love to get a better understanding. You know, specifically when you say that these firms are you know more you know, digitally focused in some ways, what exactly does that mean? And I'll just sort of qualify the question by saying, you know, we've had some conversations on this podcast and at our events, um, talking about your post-pandemic, um, how many firms essentially became digital overnight, right, in early 2020. 
um, and have completely reimagined, you know, their value prop. You know, being within 25 miles of your clients was part of your value prop at some point. Um, now you can work with anyone, anywhere, right, at any time. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, what role is digital now playing within some of the top performing firms, and how are they using it to drive growth? Yeah, that's such a good question. It's amazing, honestly, when when I hear you say that. When you think back to how much change we've all been through, right? So. Uh, you know, even just turning on your camera and meeting with a client, that wasn't really a, a common thought in the, in any of our heads <laughs> going yeah. into the pandemic. And now that's yeah. like kind of, you know, table stakes, like we're going to always do that. So over half of firms increased their use of digital processes and workflows last year to help manage their growth, create scale and drive efficiencies. And I like to start there in that conversation because a lot of times it's about the tech stack and, you know, what are we going to invest in next? I think it can get overwhelming sometimes in a good way, just how much support there is in the ecosystem, how many choices there are. And firms that outperform really do take a look at the workflows. How are they training people on the technology they have? And how are they creating scale and efficiency? So I would just start there. We do actually a lot of consulting around taking one specific workflow and reimagining it to make sure that all those touch points make sense, that your most highly compensated people are working on the most difficult and complex tasks, tasks, and that you know, your more junior folks, and a lot of times we actually see firms add a junior role, are kind of starting themselves on a career path to take on more responsibility. But in terms of what they're doing, digital client onboarding is a key capability that firms are using Mm -hmm. to improve security, consistency, efficiency for staff. So, you know, trying to get rid of all of that paper that has really defined that new client experience and adopt some of the more sophisticated digital onboarding capabilities. It's also just makes a lot of sense from a fraud and rework perspective. We see that firms that um, really take the time to implement standard and consistent practices through technology and operation to manage risk can create a lot of scalability. So top performing firms who across the board are higher adopters of digital tools, of standardized workflows, they spend about 20% less time per client annually on operations. Mm. So that's really quantifiable. And it just, even though those 15 metrics I mentioned are not looking at your tech stack or adoption specifically very much, they get that ROI on really taking the time to implement those things well. And I probably should have said earlier, top performing firms have twice the revenue growth in a five-year period as all other firms. So it's really pretty compelling over time, the things that they're doing and the compounding effect it can have on the bottom line. That is amazing. And I'm glad that you highlighted that. And I'm also you know, glad that you were talking about things like onboarding. You know, we tend to talk about you know, digital marketing a lot and mm-hmm. avoid sometimes just you know, some of the most basic things, right? The uh, experience that a new client has with an advisor should be consistent with a lot of the experiences they're having in their daily digital you know consumer lives um, and you know for it to take five to ten days to start working with your advisor in some cases just feels a little odd and out of place um, and it feels like we've made a lot of progress over the last couple of years and I appreciate you highlighting not just what they're doing properly but also what the results are um, you know when you think about 
working with hundreds of clients, you know, potentially saving you know, 20% of your time, right? Gives you days of your life back uh, to work on much more productive things. And I'm also very, very interested in, in addition to the digital piece you know, in you know, the talent uh, comment that you made uh, as far as what's driving growth for some of the top performers. Um, we've talked about the battle for talent in the RIA channel on some very recent episodes of RIA Edge, but I would love to get your sense because you have such a broad view across the entire industry and you look at this for, you said 16 years, um, at least 16 years worth of data. How competitive would you say you know, the competition for talent is right now you know, uh, from a historical perspective um, and what's influencing this heightened competition? Uh, well, it's hard to have almost any conversation without talking about talent and <laughs> the competition for talent, yeah. right? And I know, I know we're feeling it in our industry, but really across almost every industry, there's yeah. a similar conversation happening. We did do a deep dive this year into talent. Each year, we kind of have a different topic, a focus section. And luckily, we had picked talent for 2022. Um Top performing firms, they're very focused on their talent strategy. And so I can unpack some of the things they're doing a little bit. First, I would say um, we do think it's really important to be clear about who you're designing your business for. And I've been on this multi-year mission, my team and I, to get more firms to sit down and think about their ideal client persona. Who am I building this business for? Who am I trying to serve? Um, and I'll throw one quick stat at you because it's my favorite, but Firms that have an ideal client persona, a documented client value proposition, and a documented marketing strategy get 42% more new clients and 45% more new client assets in a given year mm. than firms that don't have those three things in place. And I'll just throw that out there because if anyone is looking for the silver bullet, those three things are the most impactful things you can do to drive growth and you know all sorts of things like you touched on digital marketing stem from there. The reason I wanted to start with that is as you think about who you're designing your business for, that should be the foundational piece of what kind of talent you need to hire, what kind of values are important. I hear more and more in our industry about hiring for cultural fit and teaching the technical aspects. And I think that sets us apart in a lot of ways. The benefits of helping clients really achieve something meaningful of being part of that. It really resonates for people. And those are some of the things that should get highlighted in your talent strategy. My new crusade, <laughs> and then something I'll be talking about a lot is having a documented employee value proposition, or we like to call it an EVP. So there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of competition. You have to show people why they should choose your firm to be their talent destination and their you know, career destination. People are really thinking not only about you know, why they work, where they work, but why they work, the reasons behind it, what kind of personal fulfillment are they going to get out of it? And I think our industry has an amazing story to tell if we bother to tell it well. So that employee value proposition, it, it explains what a firm offers its employees in return for their skills. Um, it shows how you're going to invest in your employees and their growth and the development. It's kind of the expression of your talent brand in the marketplace. We found in our study that about 40% of all firms have an employee value proposition, but those top performing firms are much more likely to have one. 
And we really like to see firms put that employee value proposition on their website and really start to think about their website as a talent acquisition tool. You do need to include things like your approach to workplace flexibility and you know, work location, potentially flexibility, whether or not you have it, you just need a good answer around it that you can stand behind. I like to see firms touch on compensation. You know, there's still sometimes, especially with the younger generation, they think of anything in financial services starting out as that smile and dial. And the fact yep. that we don't have that, we got to say it, right? We got to take yeah. the time to tell that story. And you know, talk about compensation in there. We can touch on that a little bit more. If you have a career path, you know, that is really something, especially the younger generations are savvy enough to ask about. If they're not going to join a huge company and they're going to join a firm, they want to know that there's a proven way that they're going to get developed and get new experiences. And then as I talk to different compensation experts in the industry, which is something I spent a little bit of time doing this year, just because it's such a unique labor market that we're in. And I wanted to see how experts who think about it every day, think about it. Their recommendation is to have one thing in that employee value proposition that just sets your firm apart. So like a signature program. At Schwab, we have a sabbatical program where you get a month off every five years of service that really resonates for people. And you know, you get to see all sorts of cool LinkedIn posts about what they're doing. And that helps us have our talent brand in the marketplace. I talk to firms who have things like a career path that they've branded and named and they talk about it very proudly on their website or maybe it's um, the fact that you have a really well thought out equity ownership program and it's a proven program and even though you might not extend it to people and you probably won't until they've been there for a period of time just knowing that's a possibility is really compelling for folks so that is a really meaningful thing to have and I would say one other thing on your website is just make sure that imagery and everything reflects the type of talent culture you're trying to build. People want to see images that feel inclusive. It's the first place people look if they're thinking, am I going to apply for this internship or this role? So really think of your website, not just as a, a, a prospective client acquisition tool, but also a talent acquisition tool and take a look at it through that lens. I love it. it's a it's it's really just giving you know our audience in the industry a framework for not just thinking about growth right um, but really thinking about you know, becoming that destination or that employer of choice and I think a lot of what you've just mapped out it basically shows that you have a plan right um, you're transparent and you also want to show people where they could fit into that vision and that plan um, so I appreciate you sharing that I mean there there are so many things in there that are not only important for our audience to to know and understand and to do, but you can also appreciate that you gave very, very specific examples right, of how they could apply this. And there are a few notes that I'm taking here that I feel like we need to put in place the wealth management group at Informa here. So thank you from a professional standpoint <laughs> for, for that one. I appreciate it. I, I do also want to spend a minute on you know, just some of the positions and the skill sets right, that you're seeing are the most sought after mm. in the RAA market. Obviously, the industry has grown quite a bit, Right. Um, but there are so many different roles within you know, an RIA firm now, especially when you look at, you know, hundreds or thousands of them. So I'm curious, what are some of the positions and the skill sets that are you know, the most in demand right now? Um, and how do you see these roles aligning with current and future growth opportunities? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll, maybe I should also say um, we saw talent and acquiring new staff rank as the number one strategic priority for firms 
in 2022 um, for the first time ever. So wow. almost always you see growth right at the top of the list. Yeah. This is the first time ever it was talent. So that you know should be an indicator of just how tight that labor market yeah. is. Um, compounded by the fact that you know we started our whole conversation talking about this enormous amount of growth. So you have to keep hiring to keep up with growth. Yep. Um, the median firm in our study was at about 550 million in AUM, and they had about roughly eight employees. That firm will need to hire six more employees in the next five years to keep up with growth. So going from you know eight to 14, that's a pretty big change. Yeah. When I take the numbers and I look across the entire industry, we're going to need to hire about 70,000 new staff in the next five years to keep up with current growth rates. And that's very conservative. That's not taking into account any attrition, any retirement or new firms coming to the market. So think of filling up an entire football stadium of talent that is not in the industry today. It's pretty, pretty incredible. And that's why I think that employee value proposition is so important. Hmm. Um, I recently was speaking with a group of advisors and I asked them who's hiring. And, you know, I had about, I don't know, 25 advisors in the room. It was kind of like a round table discussion. Every single hand goes up. Yep. Um, who's hiring five roles, keep your hand up 10 <laughs> roles. And, you know, hands are starting to go down, which of course it should, because there's firms of different sizes in the room. And finally, I just gave up and I, I said, okay, you three, how many roles are you hiring? And they were each hiring 120 roles actively right now. It's really unbelievable. Um, isn't that incredible? Yeah. And a lot of those are operational roles. Those have mm -hmm. been difficult for firms to, to hire. And I think that career path for your operational folks can be one of your answers, um, as well as your onboarding plan. Attrition's highest with new hires. So really making sure they have a good inclusive experience, even before they start their first day can be really important. Um, in our compensation study, we tracked 27 roles for the RA industry. So obviously you're not going to have all those roles when you're smaller and starting out, but the largest firms have, you know, about 27 different roles that we can get data on. Um, we're seeing a lot of, uh, of demand for client service team roles, specialized roles and in investments and in operations, and then more formalized executive management roles, especially as firms grow and they need to maybe, maybe you're wearing two or three hats and you need to be more focused in one area. So um, lots of, lots of recruiting and this can look really different for firms depending on their needs. I always like to say, don't just post the same job description that you used to have because the world's changed. Like really think through the client experience you're trying to deliver, anticipated growth rates, the ideal client you're seeking to serve and make sure each new role is really strategic. Um, and we definitely see it can be a challenge when you're hiring a really new type of role that you've never hired before. So like your first marketing person or your first technology person, you might be great at hiring advisors and operational staff, but um, getting some data and whether it's from our compens compensation study or elsewhere can really help you start to think through those specialized roles. We have some sample job descriptions we share as well um, with firms that custody on our platform just to help them kind of understand how to structure some of those, those new specialized roles as well. That 70,000 figure is really staggering, right? Um, it's incredible to think about because you know, to your point, you know, there may that doesn't include if if I was following you correctly, people who might retire, transition out, 
right? So it really could be, you know, we need another you know, 80, 90, or even a hundred thousand individuals, Probably. Right? Um, yeah. which is incredible. Um, and, you know, we know how short, you know, the, how tight the labor market is right now. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, over the next several years, right? How the firms that are winning the war for talent, what they're doing right, we'll obviously have to have you back on the RIA Edge <laughs> podcast, but it's a really unique time um, for the RIA industry, which has experienced you know, an unbelievable amount of growth. And I still feel like it's a little bit of a secret in the financial services industry that is slowly starting to get out, um, which could be a good thing. Uh, maybe the word needs to get out a little bit faster to get to that 70,000 that you were talking about. Um, I do want to make sure that before we wrap up here, we do touch on compensation a little bit. I know you'll be coming out with more specific compensation data next year, um, but with all of this competition for talent right now, um, and the market being you know as tight as it is, and the need for talent being at an all-time high, what has that done to compensation levels in the RIA industry? And if there's anything also that you might want to add, just around you know, structure or things firms are doing creatively, right, to help. You know, modernize or offer you know, a compelling compensation package, I think that would be really helpful to understand as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the short answer is compensation's gone up, right? But it's really, yeah. it's really hard to get our head around just what that looks like. Um, uh, let me talk a little bit about the structure. And I know everyone out there is kind of struggling with this as well. Like there's really important questions across all industries we're asking ourselves, which is, you know, it's, it's more expensive to acquire new talent. Um, mm -hmm. Are you going to compensate them more highly over the long term than your existing loyal, growing, high-performing talent? I think we've, I've talked to a lot of advisors who've had pretty difficult conversations with some folks around, you know, they've been at the firm for two months and they're asking for a 23% base salary Whoa. increase. Other firms are kind of like asking themselves things like, how do I, how do I make this equitable over time? So these are really important questions and I think data can help a lot, but it won't be the whole answer. Sure. So let me talk a little bit about the mix we're seeing. So across all roles in the compensation section of the study, base salary represents about 77% of total co cash compensation and then performance-based incentive pay, which is con uh, compensation tied to revenue generation and owner profit distribution distributions are the remainder. So about 77 is base and the rest is some mix of incentive pay. 79% um, of firms use performance-based incentive pay to link compensation with individual performance goals. Um, I like to see there be individual goals, team-based goals, and firm-based goals for some of that incentive compensation. I also think it's really nice to think of incentive compensation as a way to maybe equalize some of this variance in pay yeah. structures in the marketplace and to be really thoughtful about that so that it does become more equitable and defendable over time. A really important piece I think for firms to be thinking through is equity as well. So equity is another currency within our industry. It can be used to align staff goals with those of the firm, um, about 40% of firms offer equity ownership opportunities as part of their um, employee value proposition. And the median firm shares equity with about one in three staff members at the firm. Um, equity is 
usually part of a formal path to partnership, although not always. I just talked to someone the other day that has a, a employee stock option plan, which I think is really interesting and something you don't hear about as much, but more firms are con- contemplating. Um, I think that path to partnership can be really compelling. Having mentorship of those up and coming stars can be really compelling to keep Mm -hmm. them at the firm and keep them incentivized for the future. And I'll also say firms that have a really good equity program that is proven, like where you see success stories of people making it up to new levels, whether or not that means you're, you're like a senior decision maker, or just you have some amount of equity, uh, it leaves more doors open for firms, whether that's, you know, they want to sell someday, they want to sell a minority share, they want to do an internal succession. It's never too early to start thinking about it. It can be a great talent retention tool. And it can also just increase valuations longer term. So that's something I would encourage firms to really think about as well. Yeah, that was a big piece. uh, When I was at Echelon Partners, a lot of the work that we were doing is helping to put together you know, equity, you know, programs, um, for firms that historically had, you know, one, maybe two you know, partners, right. Uh, and they wanted to make sure that they were appropriately compensating, rewarding their next generation. Um, but obviously, you know, retaining them. Um, so retention is a huge part <laughs> of the battle for talent and making them feel like, you know, they're getting credit for the growth and the results that they're driving can go an incredibly long way. So Lisa, Thank you very much for walking through basically just about everything, right? The anatomy of a top performing firm and giving our audience a couple of secrets to success here. So thank you very much for walking us through the high level results from the benchmarking study. I mean, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you think would be important for our audience to take away from some of the key findings and learnings from your research this year? You know, I think it's just pick one thing and do it all the way, right? Like we just covered a ton of ground, right? That can sound super overwhelming, but pick one thing and get a documented strategy in place and do it all the way. And I think choose your next thing after that. And it it all kind of comes together in the future. And that's something we see those top performing firms do is they take the time to document these strategies and make it part of their kind of culture and how they just run their firm. And then they get those results over the long term. So Pick one thing and do it really well, and you'll be pleased with your results over time. Excellent. That's a great place to end. And thank you again, Lisa, for stopping by the RIA Edge podcast. That was incredibly helpful and interesting, and we appreciate you going deep on some of the data as well. So on behalf of the wealth management team at Informa, thank you, everybody, for tuning in here today and for listening to the RIA Edge podcast. I'm Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa, and we hope to see you all on the next episode of the RIA Edge podcast. Take care. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RAA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business, and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RAA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.